So let's get this started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Strategy Show. I'm your host, Simon Severino. This episode is brought to you by the Strategy Sprints. At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing, strategy in sprints. Strategy means more revenue every month. In sprints means while having fun. Because you will need this fun, because there will be hard times, and business is a series of sprints. You will need that energy, that motivation for the next one. As always, every week we try and find the brightest minds around so that you as a CEO can learn as much as possible about the current situation and the best tools to cope with it. I am particularly honored this week to have Thomas Seifert on our show. Hi, Thomas. Hi, how are you doing? Second time on this show. Thomas is the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of the Wiener Zeitung, and the two books that we are going to talk most about of his books are Pazifische Epoche and Schwarzbuch Öl. I'm super excited to have you here, Thomas. Me too. Let's start on a personal note. Uh, tell the readers a little bit, the listeners, uh, what are you currently uh, going through? How is this current situation for you as a human being? Well, it's a, um, well, it's a twofold thing, I guess, for a journalist. Uh, first of all, it's probably the most uh, interesting and exciting time uh, to work in as a journalist because this is a global crisis. This is a pandemic. The last time something like that happened was in 1918. Some argue that it was also maybe 1968 with the Hong Kong flu or 1957 with the Asia flu. But uh, I think this is what uh, most people will, will uh, maybe not remember as being that dire. Uh, actually, it was. I mean, in both of these uh, pandemics, uh, between one and two million people died. And we're heading into that direction, I think, right now. Um, so it's exciting. On the other hand, of course, from a personal experience is, is that, of course, our world has uh, completely changed for, I think, most of us, at least in, in, the, um, in countries like Austria or Europe, in the United States, New Zealand, Japan, wherever we are, we, things have changed dramatically. And uh, this is the other thing. Uh, but I should also add that I think I've written a, a, an essay um, I can't remember, maybe it was in end of March or something, uh, because I also used to be um, and still am a crisis reporter. So I reported from Ebola crisis in Uganda in 2000. And I have been in different, uh, reporting from different wars from Afghanistan, Iraq, also uh, in, in, uh, in, Congo, in the Congo and other places. So for me, being in, a, in an extraordinary situation was not that new. And I was uh, at that time writing in the Wiener Zeitung that I still was surprised uh, that uh, with basically you should have that foresight uh, what, how things can change because we knew it from when it started in Wuhan and then it came to Italy uh, and of course it came perhaps closer and closer and still I have to admit that I didn't foresee uh, what will be, will be happening so it's an interesting I think human trait that even rationally you might know about what's go, coming at you you still kind of push it away and you still uh, you know pretend it's not really happening at least it's not happening to you because also, as being a war reporter or crisis reporter, what usually happens, uh, if it's enough, you have your story, or you have enough, you just hop on a plane and go home. But now is, there is no place to go because the whole thing is everywhere. And uh, probably one of the safest places to be right now is in Vienna, a place with an excellent healthcare system, with a, I think that with a good policy reaction to the crisis. And we have been spared of the worst, at least in this country. So... Yeah, being home is, is uh, probably the best place to be at this moment. From your perspective, you see much more than the average of us sees. And you are writing about these things. What are one or two big misconceptions, big illusions that we people are sitting on right now that you can help us um, uncover the misconceptions. Well, um, 
first of all, it's never as bad as it as it you make it out in your fantasy because we all have seen blockbuster movies like Outbreak or Contagion or maybe the zombie apocalypse or something like that. And it's not that, right? So uh, people think that uh, society might collapse and all these things. And this is, fortunately, this didn't happen, at least not, in, in, in not, not now, not yet. And, uh, and I think that is uh, the first thing that, that uh, is, it should be, I think, a positive thing to us that, okay, things are never usually as bad as uh, you think they are. But the other misconception is that before things actually happen, you think that's not going to be that bad. Uh, so what my takeaway is, and this is basically something, a philosophy in my life is, uh, uh, you know, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. And I think this is always something that uh, a lot of people, especially in the business world, do not understand that this is a, a very important principle of uh, modus operandi to really prepare for the worst, but still also hope for the best. And another problem, I think, especially in the business world, but also in policy circles is I also I have studied natural science. I am a botanist by training. I have a degree in, in natural science. And most people in, who are in business, uh, who are in politics, they, do, they have studied law, maybe they have studied business or something like that. And, they have, and I'm very shocked usually how little the, 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 the knowledge is and the know-how is when it comes to things like biology, physics, maybe also the climate, which is another topic that's coming right after. Once we have finished with uh, we finished with COVID-19, uh, this will not go away. And this is real. And it's like a COVID-19 in slow motion, what, what's heading you know, towards us. Uh, and I think that is something that also I encourage people uh, to, uh, if you neglect nature, you, you, are, this, you do this on, on your own peril because we have seen a virus of this sort, um, the coronavirus, it basically has just a, a little RNA strand with very limited amount of genes and a, and a protein uh, lipid uh, hull around it. It's a very simple, uh, I'm even not even saying an organism because it's only life once it reproduces in your cell. It needs us as hosts uh, for this virus. But such a simple thing can turn uh, you know, humanity upside down and can turn business upside down, politics upside down, societies upside down. And I think that is something that I think uh, when people are become arrogant uh, and they think, okay, we're not even part of nature, we are something detached from nature, we, have, we are you know, superior beings. No, it's not the case. We, we live on this planet, we share this planet with uh, other organisms and without this planet, we're nothing. So. Uh, I hope that this is a takeaway for a lot of managers and politicians and people uh, that to understand that we are sharing this this planet with other uh, organisms and we are actually manipulating the planet uh, yeah, in a very significant ways and that uh, we have to be more careful. That is, I think, something that also, um, and I could go on and on on this because, for instance, uh, when it comes to flu pandemics, another one could also come. There is some some risky strands out there that might hit us as well as pandemic. Uh, if that's the influenza A type, and this has to do with uh, husbandry, you know, with animal husbandry and, and the way we do agriculture, uh, probably makes the crisis worse. And the same is probably also with the coronavirus. So we are not innocent in this. This is not something that just happened. Uh, I'm afraid we, we will see more of that in the future and not less of it because we are, we've been just lucky with SARS, with MERS, with Ebola. Uh, the last, uh, all of this could have been pandemics, the, the flu, you know, the swine flu, the, 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 the bird flu. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I think, risks out there. And uh, I think generally, as I said before, people usually underestimate risks. So the one level is very tangible for me. It is the air that I exhale this plant is, is inhaling and the air that this plant exhales, I am inhaling. We are absolutely dependent and connected. And now this is the, this is the moment where the whole world feels it and it's the chance. My big question mark is how is it possible that we were so unprepared? The knowledge was there, but we were most of our governments, if we, if we look on a global level, were really unprepared. Some reacted very well. Every government did their best. But what's your take? Why are we so unprepared and what does it mean for the second wave, the third wave that we have to expect? Um, if you allow me, I would go back in history and come to the flu pandemic of 1918. 
Uh, of course, Europe was just at the end of the war was approaching. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was basically finished, as was the German Reich. Um, and uh, Europe was in chaos because, of course, there was war in France, in Belgium, and on the Western Front, there was a revolution in 1917, started in, in uh, what then became the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire. So Europe was in chaos. So let's focus on, on that. So 1918 came, the pandemic uh, you know, burned until actually uh, 1919. Um, and uh, the world reacted. And they, they, the first thing they did was they started an office uh, in Vienna, I should, I should say. Uh, it was uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, which was at that time in Geneva and still is in Geneva. And they started this office here in Vienna uh, and they focused on epidemics. Um, so that was the first reaction to that the world understood, okay, we, the problem in 1918 because of the war and the fragmentation, because there were warring parties, you know, the United States with the French and the British here, and, uh, and then uh, the Germans and the Austrians there. And, uh, you know, so that, that was, didn't really help, uh, of course, in the, in the effort to fight a pandemic, because if you have, uh, if you have other humans are your enemy and you should actually focus on this, on this virus, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, and I think that some people understood that. And so they, they started this office. And then I think um, when, you, when you remember correctly, it was another, uh, when the League of Nations came along with, you know, Wilsonian, uh, with this Wilsonian vision, the League of Nations, they also started this uh, office. And also, of course, that collapsed and this, the Second World War came and things were forgotten uh, somehow. And, uh, but what they did, and that was pretty smart, that after World War II, they started the WHO and that was an independent body and not part of the UN framework because they understood, okay, we should not politicize this because the League of Nations collapsed and the UN also, let's just do this something different because we really know, okay, this is something else. This should be outside politics and we should all focus on fighting uh, the next pandemic. Um, and I think there you have already your answer why we were so unprepared because uh, it was underfunded. The WHO was not really funded well. And again, also, as we know that the human cooperation has collapsed more and more uh, after, let's say, even I would, I would, I would say probably the, the Iraq war in 2003 was uh, the straw that broke the camel's back when suddenly things, you know, really fell apart. And, and it was a really maybe very short period of cooperation. And, and even that is not true because we remember, you know, the Yugoslav war, etc. So um, this was never really happening. And I think that that is something that also for me, it's hard to understand uh, why still here we are in, in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the COVID pandemic, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, and uh, there is still no cooperation. And that is, I think, in the United States, uh, actually withdrawing uh, from the WHO. They, they're accusing the WHO that they have been uh, too close to the Chinese. And that may or may not be true. I mean, this is an, an open debate, but still, uh, I, I would usually we would think that, okay, let's not fight about these things. Let's just focus on the problem that's uh, in front of us. And that is to fight this pandemic uh, globally, to come up with, an, with, a, with a vaccine, to come up with, with uh, medication that works. This is what's ahead of us. And what we see is uh, nationalism, also even in Europe. You know, the first thing we had, we had borders, we had hoarding of medical equipment uh, and co co collaboration and cooperation collapsed. And I think this is what this is what the virus, uh, I think, is, is showing us in a sense that basically uh, this virus is switching on and off the light and say, hello, guys, you, you know, really need to cooperate in this planet a little bit more. And it's a warning because, again, as I said, the, the climate change is the next crisis that, that's already here. I mean, if you observe temperatures and, and, and the, the climate in Europe and this part of the world where we sit right now, um, you see that okay, the temperatures are out of whack already. And, and then this is, this is a real crisis. Um, and we also have to fight this together. And as long as it's not happening, um, I think it's a pretty big picture because the next challenge will be how to distribute and produce uh, you know, millions and actually billions of doses of, of vaccine and uh, this is a global endeavor, and I'm not seeing that it's happening. Uh, but going back to your, uh, to your question, why did we, were we not prepared? First of all, I think, again, society is underestimating risks generally. I mean, just look at how many, uh, uh, how many nuclear events we had in, in the past. I mean, this was to be, seemed to be, you know, they, they told us, yeah, it's 10,000 of years. There's no risk in it. We had Chernobyl, we had Fukushima, we had Harrisburg, Three Mile Island. So I, I think that what really people should, should worry about is a total underestimation of risk. 
and there's many risks out there. I mean, I could come up with a whole list. Let's say uh, if we had a computer virus on top of, of, of the coronavirus right now, this would be game over for, for the way we do business, right? Because what, what's cushioning us in, in, the, in, in the developed world is that uh, if that would have would happened 15, 20 years ago before the internet, we would have been in a very different situation. Our logistics would be in a different situation. Uh, homeschooling would not be possible. Many other things that, that we do, or this what we're just doing would not be possible. So I think people should focus more on risks and this should be part of, of uh, any uh, business that you have, it's small or, or not. What is my worst case scenario? What could possibly go wrong? And you don't dwell on it, you're not going depressive and say, well, the world is ending, but you really focus and say, okay, Everything that could go wrong can actually go wrong. So let's focus on the weakest uh, links and let's, and let's strengthen them. And uh, let's make sure that we have a plan B always, maybe a plan Z, that we have uh, parallel structures, that we have a simple uh, financial management. So not these, you know, these levels of complexity that the financial service industry has. I think it's very dangerous because if, if something happens, you don't know how this will ripple through your system. And the same is true with the logistics. So if you have very complex logistics change and, and you know, production and, and also the rest of it, uh, also that is, uh, I think, taking complexity out of the system is, is, a, is a good thing to do. You should start that always. You should always have that in place. And then also making sure that, um, uh, that you have that all the structures in your company, in, your, in, in politics, in society, uh, that they should be um, resilient. I think resilient is the keyword of, of our time. And even I think Nicholas Halep was this mathematician who said, well, who wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, and it would even be better to have something that actually not only absorbs the shock, but gets somehow strengthened uh, by a shock like that. And this is the best thing we could hope for our societies that we not only absorb this shock, uh, but we actually learn something from it and, and get more strength once we get out of this. Beautiful. I ask everybody on the show, and we have different assumptions there. Will there be a new normal after this? On the one side, we have Ben Pring and other futurists saying there will be no new normal. There has never been a new normal. Everything that can go digital will go digital. Everything was broken before, and now we are just seeing that it is broken, like flying around, etc. And on the other side, we have entrepreneurs and employees saying, well, okay, for two months now, uh, I, I will just duck and cover and then come back and do everything as always. What's your take? Well, this I think is a, is a very interesting and important question. Uh, first of all, my take is that, um, of course, this is all depends on the virus. Uh, will the virus become more virulent? Will it become more deadly? Uh, usually that's not happening. Uh, this is usually these um, viruses should get less deadly. Why? Because um, the evolution obviously is that we want basically the better it spreads, the better it is. But if it kills everyone, it ends in the grave. You know, just uh, getting out of circulation. Uh, so usually what, what we saw in different uh, circumstances that, that, that viruses usually uh, get less virulent. For instance, that happened with the, with the Spanish flu. It basically diluted into a flu that, you know, now more or less the, the, the daughters and grand-granddaughters and sons of this virus, so to speak, uh, this RNA mutated and is still uh, more or less, um, you know, generations, generations and generations after it are still around. So that is, but again, we're totally dependent on what this virus uh, does, you know, how it will spread, how well we can contain it, if we get a vaccination, if we get medication, if we can, uh, you know, mitigate the, the whole problem. Uh, so that is number one. But let's assume that uh, the prognosis is correct, that we have maybe a vaccine in two years, uh, that we have more and more better medication, that, uh, that we learn, you know, to, to kind of social distancing uh, in a way that will not kill the economy. And I think we are just about, you know, right now learning it and trying it and testing the water, how thin is the ice that we can walk on. This is what Europe is just doing. This is what America is just doing. Uh, and I think they are too fast because we have been more, uh, I think, more careful uh, in many ways and more testing, etc. But anyway, this is, I think, where, what we're in. And do I think it's, and then again, once this is, is over, you will have a, a 
a quite fast rebound uh, in economic terms uh, in the first phase, which will then be a slower rebound uh, going back to what was before. So I think um, anybody who thinks that this is like a V-shaped uh, recession is wrong. I don't think this will happen. And also, uh, I think societies will change. I could give you, you know, many, many examples of how societies were changed uh, through epidemics going back to 1918. Um, for instance, it definitely changed the course of World War One. It shortened it because, uh, of course, soldiers that are sick cannot fight. Uh, that was good. Probably uh, that saved lives. On the other hand, of course, the virus killed so many people, uh, 50 million altogether. And it was only in Europe where more people died in the war than in the, with the virus. So actually, uh, give and take, it was very bad, right? So uh, a pandemic is, is, uh, is, is uh, uh, the outcomes are usually bad because people lose their lives. But once we want to learn from it means, um, you know, how can we adjust our lives and what can we learn from it? And that means um, that, first of all, again, we need to be prepared better the next time. Uh, as I said before, also changing some ways of uh, doing business and, and, and uh, changing our societies, uh, taking complexity out, etc. what I said before. And the other thing is, um, I think that uh, also it's a warning shot, in a sense, for, for climate change. So uh, going through it, um, when it comes to travel, um, that will be affected for a long time, I think. And probably the solution for most things will be you get a, a test for the virus. Uh, this time is a, uh, is, you know, testing for if you have a virus material in your body. And then, of course, in the second phase, a immunologic test if you are immune or if you have a built-up immunity against SARS-CoV-2. And so that will be uh, the first phase of getting out of it. So that before you enter a plane, you get maybe tested. Before you go to a concert or to the museum or to whatever, you're getting tested to the office. Uh, that could be one solution uh, to, to get out of it. And then uh, when it comes to changing mindsets, um, I think also the mentality might change. Because a lot of people sat at home now for, since in Austria it was a, uh, at least, you know, the, the weekend of March uh, 13, the Friday, uh, people sat at home and maybe some people, you know, recalibrated and rethought what is really important in their lives, what they need, what they don't need, how they want to do, continue their lives and what they maybe want to change. Um, I also wouldn't overestimate this because uh, I think people are very, they do know, they don't want change. Most people just want to continue the way they did. Uh, but I think, and my hunch is that those people who understood quickly uh, what was going on are uh, those who are come you know go out successful through this crisis and this is uh, the case with countries those who neglected the problem those who just pretended it's not there uh, they they will have a lot of uh, of pain i mean both in, in people who lose their life and also in economic pain and also in political disruption because a government that cannot safeguard the security and health of the citizens is not a government that should be should be in place uh, and should be sitting in 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 in, in government. So I think there will be a lot of changes, um, and we will see them in all sorts of uh, things like consumption, uh, your way of life, the arts. I mean, there will be. Uh, I think there will be uh, results. I mean, this will express itself. Um, maybe in curious ways that I cannot foresee now, but uh, I'm, I'm in the camp who says, well. Um, people will want to continue the way they did because this is just, I think, in human nature for most people. And I think that those who to understand quickly that what has changed and maybe what ways our lives could change or could already have begin to change, these will be the ones that are definitely will be more uh, successful. Absolutely. If we look at a society as a whole, which part do you think is more impacted than other parts? In, in economic terms, in behavioral terms? Well, um, I think the figures show, of course, at the moment, it's, it's definitely uh, everything that has to do with tourism is, is very badly affected. That means for countries that depend on tourism, uh, that it begins with, uh, let's say, Thailand, um, or, or um, of course, also in Europe, it's, it's Austria, it's Spain, it's Croatia, it's Italy, it's Portugal. I mean, so many countries really have a, tour, a huge tourism industry. And of course, if the hotel closes, then it also means that the bakery sells less um, bread. That means that the butcher sells less uh, meat to the hotel. Um, 
and we all know this ripples through the whole economy. So that is something that that's uh, that's uh, that's happening. And then also everybody who, and this is I think the the tragedy of of a virus and the tragedy of a pandemic like this. Everybody who has to be with people, maybe in, in a close encounter, even uh, that will be hit. Uh, let's start with a massage therapist or people even might uh, not want to go to the doctor, even if they should, right? Because they are afraid that maybe if they go to the doctors, they might catch, catch the, the virus. Um, uh, restaurants, um, any places where people meet. I mean, this means also, let, let's say, co-working spaces or anything uh, uh, of, that, of that sort. And this, I think, is a tragedy because what uh, I spoke before, that the thing that really makes us human humans uh, resilient is if we have the, the, the option and have the, if we if we connect right as i said before if we would cooperate this crisis would end much faster than like now unfortunately with uh, you know president u.s president donald trump doing one thing the europeans doing another thing the chinese doing a third thing um, coordination would be much better and, and this crisis would be much faster behind us if we would do that and it's the same with people if we if everybody have to figure out their own uh, way to deal with it it's uh, much slower to adapt and it's, I think uh, the outcomes might not be optimal if we had the chance to just have a big Congress, let's say that the, the thousands um, most uh, uh, intelligent people on the planet figure it out together on two weekends. We can't do that now. We can only like what we do, Zoom or Facebook or Skype or whatever we have. We have. And I think that's a big, a big problem because we all know that human connections are deeper than just sharing, uh, talking. There is some levels, I think, of uh, human interaction that are very important that, uh, of course, get lost uh, now at the moment, both in the workplace, maybe also in your personal life because um, people sleep less, people are, have a head full with lots of, of, of thoughts and thoroughs. So um, I think that is uh, something that we have to find ways around it to still make sure that we have these connections, that we still... Uh, have you know forums of interaction uh, where we can share our experiences maybe also talk about our fears talk about our our problems um, because I, I think that's one other aspect that uh, I want to share is the problem that we have and and again I'm very much uh, in, in, in favor of learning from the past so not to repeat the mistakes of, of the past and we have two things going on at the moment one is the the one layer is the pandemic right that's bad enough, right? But what we see developing more and more is like we have a, a, a global economic crisis, and I would even say it's a depression. It's going to be a depression. It's not going to be your, you know, you know, your random seasonal kind of blips in, 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 in you know, the curve of, of GDP, and it's going to be a real problem. Um, and I think these two crises uh, are, are there, and the shifts are enormous. Again, I mean, if anybody who a country that depended on oil exports. We see where that goes. Um, what about the uh, you know food supply in, in some countries that maybe have to import food? Uh, what about workers? Uh, they, you know, suddenly you release you know th hundreds of thousands of of, of guest workers, uh, migrant workers that you don't need because there is nothing to produce, nothing to build at the moment. You just what what are you going to do with them? Just send them home to the to the uh, you know uh, countries where they came from. So I think there is going to be a lot of. Um, uh, political turmoil that's maybe still ahead of us. There's a lot of economic turmoil that's still ahead of us. Um, and and, and to, I think to these problem is, and, uh, and that is also interesting that complexity scientists, I think are, are the flavor of the, of the year, I would say, not of the month or the week, uh, because this is, these are hyper complex systems. And if you cannot fix just the pandemic, uh, you cannot just fix the economy. Uh, you have to fix all these things together. And I think that's a very, very complex dance um, that we're just, I think, beginning to learn uh, the first steps of it, I would say. Coping with the crisis on all these levels. From my observation, I see many, many, many people losing their business, losing their job. And the, the amount is, is really huge. And then there is a small part of people that were they are growing exponentially because they have digitized or or they were always digital so they are growing exponentially they are winning this game they're surfing the wave and and so many are below the water what will this do with 
the societal tension. What can we expect? And maybe even if you have some ideas, what can we contribute to, yeah. to hold that tension? Yes, I think uh, um, one of the things that, uh, that you saw, uh, again, I'm going back to 1918, the, the flu pandemic, is for instance, um, in Korea, Korea at that time was under Japanese occupation. It was uh, ruled by the Japanese uh, empire. And uh, a lot more Koreans uh, died in this pandemic than Japanese because the Japanese in Korea, I'm talking about, had access to better healthcare. They had a better social uh, situation, etc., etc. And this gave a huge boost once this pandemic or during the pandemic even for a Korean independence movement. The same happened in India to a certain degree, uh, where also um, uh, you know the, the, the people uh, who later became on the forefront of the independence movement also I think they were shaped by this pandemic. Uh, the, a great book by Laura Spinney um, about the the 1918 flu is all in there basically. This is where I have a lot of my, my knowledge from this book, and I interviewed her just recently. Uh, terrific book. Uh, everybody should read it now because a lot of lessons are there that we can maybe learn that are maybe still relevant today. And if I look at this, what's going on at the moment is um, in the United States, we have a very similar uh, situation. You have, uh, if you look at who, the people who die, are those on the lower ends of the social spectrum, uh, a lot more Latinos die than, than whites, a lot more uh, African-Americans die than Caucasians. So there must be something wrong, right? And I think that will not be, uh, I don't think this will, it will somehow uh, change the political, uh, the political um, situation in, in the country uh, because people now suddenly inequality, which was always there, uh, is, is visible. And I think it's le to a lesser degree in Europe because our healthcare systems are, are organized differently. Our societies are much more equal when it comes to access to healthcare, etc., than the United States. So I think Europe is a different story a little bit in this case, but uh, in, in, in the United States, I'm, I'm sure that this will not go, you know, this, this will not just pass. It, it's, it, this will have a severe social consequences and political consequences because people can see with their own eyes who's going to die and who's not going to die, or who's dying and who's not dying. So I think that will, uh, will have a big impact. Um, and then again, I told you that I think that, that, that you have these two layers. You have the, the pandemic and the social consequences, the political consequences. You have the, uh, the, the, the economic depression, which has its own logic, so to speak. And there's another book that, uh, that I uh, will recommend you. It's by Robert McElvain. And also I interviewed him. The interview will be published. Both these interviews will be published in the Wiener Zeitung soon. Uh, and he said something interesting about the, what happened during the, the um, depression. And that was, and you said, okay, literally millions of people losing their jobs. Again, in the United States, more than in Europe, we have, we have more social buffers, uh, we have a better social security systems. Uh, but again, let's focus on, on the, the case of the United States because everything is more um, uh, expressed there. It's, it's much more, uh, it, it, you know, the, the peak the peaks are much more uh, severe than, than in Europe. Uh, we have like 33 million, I think, uh, unemployed already. And what happened during the Great Depression was, of course, uh, FDR came in. He tried to, to uh, mitigate the crisis after you know, Hoover had done really a good job in it. But it, wasn't, it was, still wasn't enough. But what you saw at that time, that's what Robert McElvain writes, is that the middle class, which usually was aspiring towards the richer class, and maybe we can all still, uh, you know, remember uh, when we would maybe have done the same. We would have want to go to an expensive restaurant, maybe buy a car that we actually don't need but looks fancy and, and big. Uh, and so people were kind of primed to to want to be like the rich class. Maybe uh, uh, you cannot afford a villa in Ibiza, a finca there, but for a week you can, right, with a swimming pool and everything. And that that was kind of this this aspiration for luxury, aspiration for the good life that rich people would have. This was what well, a large part of the middle class would, would follow this model. And then, then you, you just pretend somehow that you're part of the club in, in, in certain consumption that maybe uh, you, for, for an hour, for two hours, for a day, for a week, you can be part of that class and then you withdraw to what you can afford, right? And, um, but then, you know, you lose job. What happened in the United States in the, in the Great Depression was that the people suddenly were falling off to lower ends of the social spectrum because, again, 
there was next to no, no social security then. And what happened then was suddenly this middle class found a new uh, sympathy and, and empathy and alliance with the lower class because suddenly they were there, right? And also women, you know, because women, and that, that's the case in our society as well, are also they meet their, their, you know, they're, they're um, subjects of discrimination. So usually also their income is lower. They're part of, of uh, uh, you could also say to the underclass uh, to a certain degree, uh, just because they, there is, uh, there is uh, no gender equality. So what happened then, it gave a boost. Well, that's what he writes in his book. Uh, to the labor movement. It gave a boost to, let's say, leftist politics in the United States. And also it gave a boost to uh, the women's uh, liberation movement uh, because suddenly this middle class saw, okay, well, these people that now we're part of, uh, they ha really have a tough life because now we have a tough life. So let's try to work something out. And I think that is quite interesting um, to, to, to uh, the quite interesting observation. And I wonder if something like that might happen as well at least in those countries where you had you really have pronounced social uh, inequality that now manifests itself because I think what the virus does also, it, uh, it makes things visible. It makes visible who actually works in our societies for who is actually essential for survival. And these are the people who work in logistics for the supermarket. Those are the people who work, uh, uh, you know, driving the trucks to bring us food. Uh, those are the people who work in, in, in the butchery, et cetera, et cetera, in the slaughterhouse. Um, I think the virus has made uh, social inequality visible. And I think this will definitely have some political consequence, I would guess. Hopefully. Who should read your two books, Pazifische Epoche and Schwarzbuch Öl, and why should they read it? Well, uh, the, I wrote the book Schwarzbuch Öl uh, in, in 2005, uh, after the war in Iraq, when I, when I, when I was a reporter there. And uh, I think that for me, the book is not even available anymore. You have to go to a library or maybe trying to get it secondhand. Uh, but still, I think there are some uh, interesting facts that are still relevant today when it comes to the history of oil and how oil is basically made our modern world. And I think uh, and that is, of course, now interesting because at that time, I also, in the book, mused about the, the fact what will happen or what happens usually when you have an energy regime change. So I wrote about uh, what, how the world was changed, that when uh, the, the, you know, the, the energy of the Industrial Revolution was coal. That was what the Industrial Revolution was built on. And only, you could say, maybe in the 30s, and of course, World War II was a boost, a big boost for the oil industry. Uh, then suddenly the, the, the energy switched, um, the foundation of our, of our societies when it came to energy switched from coal to oil. And I would wonder, maybe we are in another of these pivotal moments in, in human history when uh, another switch is imminent. And of course, this is, will not happen overnight. Um, but maybe this crisis will also, like so many other things, you mentioned digitalization, maybe it also will um, speed up certain developments. And um, I will ask, you know, I would ask governments who now, you know, uh, they really plunged billions and trillions of dollars and euros into the economy. Why would you um, invest into technologies that are outdated? Like uh, if you have an opportunity to, to invest in a, in a solar power plant, uh, why would you invest in a coal power plant? If you have an opportunity to, to invest in, in uh, electric vehicles, why would you invest in a, a new factory for you know, gas, gasoline-driven uh, vehicles or diesel vehicles? So I think that will also boost it, and especially if you are an institutional investor uh, who plan, you know, you know, piles, again, trillions or billions of dollars in, in industries, uh, that, and the payout date is in you know, 30 years from now, uh, these industries will probably not exist anymore uh, because maybe nobody will drive a, a diesel-powered uh, car anymore. So I think this will ex actually uh, definitely speed up the process of going into this carbon-free uh, future when it comes to energy. And, and I already write about this in, in, in this book that this is what will happen and it will also change the world because it will mean uh, that the geopolitical situation will change. I mean, think of Russia, think of, of Saudi Arabia. I mean, these countries, uh, they depend on exports of oil. So their political uh, and also economic power will be uh, very diminished because you can produce energy, electric energy, anywhere. I mean, you, you have solar, you have wind. Uh, maybe uh, you can produce it in Morocco and somewhere in, in, in the desert, you know. So maybe this will shift a lot of things 
um, for for uh, for mostly I think for the better, uh, fortunately. And uh, and also the same is true with um, Pacific Epoch, as it would be the, the translation in English. It's it's not available in English, unfortunately, and that was uh, published I think in 2015, before Trump was in power. But also uh, you will find a lot of names in there that that I've that. You know that I wrote about, like for instance, Peter Navarro, who's uh, now very vocal, who was one of the first people who warned about the virus, actually, and he's a, a big China hawk. Uh, he 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 has a. Uh, you can actually watch it. He, I think he put a video out there and wrote a book uh, called, um, I think, the coming war with China or something like that. So he's really uh, one of the people in Trump's um, in in Trump's circle who's very much you know anti-Chinese, and um, I, already I wrote about this kind of. Um, that how China and America, this what, what uh, Neil Ferguson, the historian, uh, talked about uh, the Chimerica, how these two you know big powers would would cooperate and, and would profit from each other. Apple would would send the, the you know the blueprints. Uh, the, in China, the, the, the iPhones would be built, and then they would ship them back to China to sell them in the shop for a big markup, of course, and that would make uh, shareholders of Apple very happy. That this uh, might be coming to an end. And again, I think that the virus uh, speeds this process up. We can see that right now that this is happening. It's a very dangerous situation, I think, um, especially for Europe, because um, both these powers might then ask uh, Europe to take a side. And I think for Europe, this is not a good option, because um, I think uh, Europe, uh, the, the economic future is in the East. I mean, uh, the, the economic future, even with all the innovation that is there in the United States, etc., Asia is catching up, and also Europe is not nowhere in this. When, especially when you look at 5G, at least we still have production of 5G technology in Europe. Uh, in the United States, is a different story. So um, I would think that that this is is a very dangerous development, and, and Europe is is only to lose because. Actually, what I think what the chance that Europe has is in this situation, we want to do business uh, with both these powers. And also, I think we want to have political uh, open channels to both these powers. And uh, if, if uh, they want us to you know, choose and pick a side in, a, in whatever alliances they will form, uh, this is not, uh, I think, something that, that Europe would want to uh, you know, wish for. This is not good for us at all. As a person, what did you learn about coping with uncertainty, preparing for the unthinkable? Well, um, as I said, the first good thing is, I mean, when, when this whole thing happened, and I remember uh, I came back from a, a holiday uh, from, the, from Africa at that time, uh, flew back from, uh, with Ethiopian Airlines, uh, that's in big trouble at the moment, airline, flew back from Addis Abeba to uh, Vienna, and in Addis, already people had masks and uh, and I was also following the news of course you know the internet connection was not very good where I was at that, that time so I didn't really you know get the full picture of what was happening but already I saw that in, in Addis there was uh, people were nervous and then I was somehow surprised that in, in Austria nobody was nervous or you know people were just you know not really that much concerned and I remember then I think I wrote an, an, an op-ed an, an, sorry an opinion piece kind of the um, the lead opinion piece of on the on fifth I think or sixth of February, and I, I, the, the title was you know preparing for the pandemic. So I was quite concerned, and I also started to um, you know prepare uh, you know the home and everything for for this uh, pandemic. So that means you know you know buying some sort of medication. Uh, the, you know we didn't even have a thermometer in the house for for if you have a high temperature etc I, I ordered masks uh, uh, and, and, and these things were but again I was not sure that this will happen uh, that, that later happened but I was just prepared uh, the most basic things for this can be prepared for the pandemic and I think that is always good because being prepared means uh, that gives you assurance even if this material is never used you still you have it and you have something to to fall back on you know okay you have done your best you are prepared and i think that is something that that gives at least a person like myself some sense of security that i know okay um i am prepared so being a prepper <laughs> at least uh, in some sense is always good because it, it, it gives you um, a sense of control and I think that is then uh, what you have to learn step by step to 
uh, there is a situation you don't know how it develops and and you and i think you have to be very flexible and uh, one day can be like this tomorrow things can be much better things could be much worse i mean that's uh, what you don't know in a situation like this and still uh, i think now there are the the, the the difficult thing is uh, how can you be pessimistic enough to um, be realistic that means you should force yourself a pessimistic worldview just again to be prepared uh, and at the same time that should not drag you down and I think that is uh, something that is then difficult for peppers that uh, that you are an optimistic um, person at the same time that you are a pepper you, you know what I mean so uh, you think okay the apocalypse might happen but still uh, most likely not right so so you still prepare for the apocalypse uh, but at the same time, you know, okay, this is probably, this is your, not your baseline scenario. This is the worst case scenario. And this is very unlikely that this will happen. But even uh, if you can prepare for this very unlikely uh, a bad situation, um, and then keep your hopes high that, okay, how can I, what can I do next? How can I get out of this more quickly? Uh, how can I get, you know, not lose control of, of uh, the situation, be it in your work, be it in your, in your personal life, be it in your, in, you know, and maybe in, in, in society, if you have a, a position to, to somehow shape the, the, the things that, that go on. Um, yeah, I think that is uh, the, this most difficult part that to be an, an, be an optimist, being a pessimist and being an, a realist and all these three things at the same time. I think that is uh, what makes things very difficult uh, in a situation like this. Because the most, you know, the best thing is to be realistic, of course, um, and optimistic that brings you, you know, to embrace the next morning and pessimistic that is what gets you through if things just don't work out the way you thought. Thomas, one question that I forgot to ask you. Yes. Which would that which, which would that be? The question that you forgot to ask me. Um, well, maybe what uh, what you should should have asked is uh, how what is uh, uh, what is your scenario? How will uh, how will this end? And uh, there, uh, I already complained about the, the lack of international cooperation. Uh, and this is still the case, unfortunately, but, and this is the silver lining, and this is interesting maybe for the people uh, who view this and the people who listen to us, is there is cooperation. This is the good news because the scientific community, and these are the guys who actually save, will save us all. It's not going to be politicians. It's not going to be business. At the end of the day, it's going to be scientists, uh, immunologists, uh, virologists, biologists, uh, epidemiologists and others uh, uh, and, and uh, medical uh, personnel, of course, and those are also uh, scientists, and they cooperate. Uh, they read each other's papers, uh, they communicate, uh, they, they write together on papers. I'll give you another example. There is a group of scientists who work in Vienna uh, on, a, on a vaccine. Uh, the company is called Temis Bioscience, and they work with a group in Pittsburgh University and uh, they work with another group in the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And this is just one of the groups who work on a vaccine right now. And then there's many, many others. And all those people cooperate uh, because they need each other. One person has to do uh, clinical trials at the end. One person has to do work with statistics. So they need computer modeling. They need modeling of, of proteins, of uh, viruses, of anything, you know. And they need biochemists, etc., etc. And all of these people... Uh, they uh, cooperate. And I think that is um, uh, the thing, uh, how this will end. But fortunately enough, we have scientists who work on this and it'd be either a medication that works or it may be, uh, uh, that would be the first thing that there will be tests. They're already online. There's me medical trials with the medication. Also, that looks good. And the next step is the vaccine. And uh, this is the, our exit scenario. And the good thing is, Politicians are, I think, uh, really this big disappointment in the most part. Uh, actually, also here, Europe is an exception because when there was a conference, a donor conference for financing the vaccine, Europe was uh, heavily involved with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, CP, WHO, and others. And who was not there? The Chinese, 
the Americans, India, they were absent. And so I think uh, I should actually somehow spare Europe the criticism in this because uh, they are the good guys in, 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 this, in this game. Um, but again, scientists cooperate, they work on the, on the problems and fortunately and hopefully uh, we will get a, a medication and a vaccine. You know, when that will be, I don't know. But uh, this is how this will end. Thank you so much, Thomas, for sharing your knowledge with us. And listeners, if you want to hear and read more of Thomas' work, Lise, uh, you can read the Wiener Zeitung in the next days where his current articles and interviews will be published. And you can read his books, Pazifische Epoche and Schwarzbuch Öl. Thomas, what's the best way to stay in your loop to get in contact with you? Yes, uh, the best thing is uh, to follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's where I usually share um, these kind of things that we've been talking about. And I share at the moment, I share mostly on, on economic issues, geopolitical issues and, and COVID in general. Um, so Twitter is good. Uh, if you want to see the light side, unfortunately, there's not much to, to tell at the moment. You can follow me on Instagram as well. Always it's like Thomas Seifert, one word. Uh, you can do that as well on Facebook. I'm there as well. But um, again, in the Wiener Zeitung, you usually you find my work. Uh, and also I will put a link to this video that we, that we do here that will later on be archived uh, there as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This was the second time on the show. Please come back soon for the third time. We need you, Thomas. Yes. Uh, just uh, as a, maybe as an ending, I did an interview with Robert McElvain, I told you, and, uh, and he wrote a book, this book about the, the Great Depression. And he says, when, whenever journalists call me, it's not a good time. I know that something is not good. And I hope I'm not going to be that kind of person. So please, uh, hopefully the next time uh, we have a conversation, it's gonna be, we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, about the you know, positive things and uh, we can be talking about how things are ready getting better. We will see. Thank you, Thomas. Okay. Bye-bye. Entrepreneurial freedom is awesome. It's also a lot of hard work to get there. And when you are there, it's easy to lose your grip. Our community of over 16,000 entrepreneurs is getting stronger and stronger every week because we amplify each other. We share what works and drop the rest. We test, refine, improve. Check strategysprints.com slash clarity to level up your business and have fun doing it.